But uh, it just goes to show how, in terms of his loyalty, his lack of loyalty, people who show such undying loyalty to him, like some of the folks leading our party, is mind-boggling because it's only a matter of time before he turns on you. I was in a bomb shelter in Odessa when uh, five missiles were, were announced that were coming toward Odessa. We were rushed to the basement. The band came down and continued playing the concert in a bomb shelter in the basement. Something that Elon Musk tweeted today. A social media platform's policies are good if the most extreme 10% on left and right are equally unhappy. Does that imply that he still will be in the content moderation business? I think he has to be. You're listening to Pod Suey, the week's top story served a la carte. Subscribe at thegreatvoice.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Eccentric billionaire Elon Musk reached a deal to buy Twitter for $44 billion, causing cheers from one side of the aisle and concern from the other. So what kind of changes can we expect on the social media giant? Cliff Lampy, professor of information at the University of Michigan, on Guy Gordon. I was intrigued uh, by something that Elon Musk tweeted today. He said a social media platform's policies are good if the most extreme 10 percent on left and right are equally unhappy. Does that imply that he still will be in the content moderation business? I think he has to be, right? You, because there are some things, some types of content you have to moderate, and some aspects of Twitter as a tool that just require moderation. So, yes, he's still in the content moderation business. Well, if so, then how does he achieve, which has been the challenge for everybody, how does he achieve an understanding about who the moderate or acceptable 80% is there in the middle? And will they be truly in the middle? Or as some liberals fear, they will be all hard right. Or those that have said, you know, Twitter is already dominated by uh, liberal employees. Will it still be somewhere left of center? Yeah, it's interesting. Like I, I, I also saw that tweet and was interested by it, considering that something like 60 percent of the content on Twitter is generated by those polls that he is dismissing so quickly. Right. It is basically the folks on either end, that that 10 percent on either spectrum that generates most of the content that he's selling at this point. They're so, really active. Yeah, they are. They, they generate a lot of content. And so. I don't know what that actually means in terms of moderation policy, what he said. I don't doubt that he knows either, but it is, you know, it's a pithy bon mot. Well, that it is. So um, if, if he is still going to be in the content moderation business, how does he restore the credibility to those on the far right or maybe just slightly right side of the political spectrum that seems to feel like they are being punished and they are being policed more rigorously than others? And for those on the left that fear that it's going to be Wild West with no moderation at all, how does he establish credibility? Yeah, like you said in the intro, there's definitely been a lot of strong feelings either direction on this. I mean, I think um, in terms of people who are more conservative in perspective, that just the change in leadership you can see being celebrated amongst those circles. For people on the left side, I think it's going to take a matter of seeing what actually happens um, and what actual policies go from talking points from Elon Musk to actual tools and policies. It was interesting. I saw a right-leaning magazine, the Natural, the National Review, uh, propose that he needs to establish actually more rules and more specific rules about what is allowed and not allowed threats against individuals 
uh, threats of jihad, um, the, the kind of demonstrably false propaganda. But again, we yeah. see that that can evolve. I mean, one moment a lab leak theory is verboten, and the next moment the mainstream media is talking about it. So it ends up being a moving target, doesn't it? It really does, which makes having hard and fast rules really challenging. I mean, content moderation is a big challenge. No platform does it very well. Um, and I think it's probably a little hopeful thinking you can come in and fix content moderation wholesale. But, you know, I think it's always worth it a chance to try to get it right. So one of the things he, he has said and other experts have said is he's going to battle the bots, whether they be Russian bots or whatever bots that have kind of driven a lot of the content. For those of us that are not techie, how is that going to serve me well if I am a user of Twitter? Yeah, I think what he wants to have you be sure of is that a person you're interacting with on Twitter is actually a person. And even if you disagree with them, you honestly disagree with them, as opposed to them just manipulating your feelings or your ideas for their own ends. There's a, a quite a few ways that that happens. Bots, basically kind of automated accounts is one of those. Um, so when he says, I want to battle the bots, what he's really talking about is trying to take on this complex web of misinformation that occurs on Twitter. And authenticate that I'm an actual human. Does that mean that I'm going to have to, on some montage of pictures, pick out the road signs or the cars and bicycles? Let's hope not. Um, yeah, yeah, because I won't look at that as, as progress. Yeah, there are pros and cons to kind of authenticating everybody as a real human. There are plenty of pseudonymous and anonymous accounts on Twitter that do quite a bit of good. But a lot of account, anonymous accounts that do quite a bit of bad. So, you know, do you throw the baby out with the bathwater? I think that's going to become the central question. He's talked about, and, and again, this is, could just be spitballing, um, the, the idea of a subscription fee, if you, I guess, want to get rid of the ads, um, an edit button. How will that change my use of, of the site? I, I really am a fan of the subscription fee idea. In my field, we think probably a lot of the kind of source of problems in social media is its ad-based model, right? Because it incentivizes a certain type of design that keeps us angry and keeps us coming to the site right. uh, to sell ads. Um, so a subscription model, which, you know, older media <laughs> learned about a long time ago, is great. That would be lovely to have. The United States and Russia engaged in a prisoner swap, bringing Paul Webb, a 30-year-old Marine who has been in prison since 2019 on charges of assaulting a police officer, home in exchange for a Russian pilot convicted of drug smuggling. The swap brings new attention to the case of Paul Whelan, a Novi man who has been in Russian custody since 2018 and raises questions as to why he wasn't released as well. Congressman Tim Wahlberg, who has been working to free Whelan, joins the Paul W. Smith show fresh off his visit to Ukraine. We're talking about a, a country run by a thug um, who works on his own time schedule and his own plan and deems whatever is necessary for whatever purpose to be responsible. And uh, that isn't the case. I'm uh, just super delighted that uh, Trevor Reed is coming home uh, to his parents. I met uh, both of his parents, and uh, this has been a long-term process for, for them. Uh, Paul, I, I think I can say without violating any information issues uh, that Paul and Trevor's issues are both different. Uh, they have been handled differently. Uh, the negotiations that come from our State Department, Ambassador Sullivan and others have done a yeoman effort. I have no complaints. 
I have no complaints about what uh, President Trump or or President Biden have done on their behalf, but they are two different situations. We are still hopeful that uh, this can be resolved in a positive way, and Paul Whelan will be brought home to his family in Michigan, um, and um, we'll keep on that effort. Uh, uh, with the war going on in Ukraine right now, there certainly is, is concerns about how Putin will deal with America. Uh, but I think America not, cannot be buffaloed for any reason into not doing what's right for the world and for ourselves, uh, but also for people who have been taken into captivity wrongly. Uh, ch- trumped up charges, no true trial that was given, and uh, life has been altered altogether. Uh, frankly, it's a little bit astonishing that while, while we've got Putin waging this uh, barbaric war in Ukraine— and his anger at America for getting involved by giving them weapons. Uh, it's, it was a little shocking that Trevor Reed was released, frankly. Well, you can't get into the mind of Putin. I just uh, got back from sneaking into Ukraine for this, this past weekend uh, and uh, spent uh, time in and around uh, all over Ukraine um, and seeing what's going on by the brave Ukrainian people. Uh, it's 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 truly an inspirational experience uh, to see people fighting for freedom, for the autonomy of their sovereign nation. Um, and uh, uh, Putin at this point in time, because he's not winning, is losing. Um, and it could be even in his mind uh, to gain a little bit of respect, whatever that means to him, uh, from from the finger pointing that's going on from the entire world, basically. Uh, at least civilized world, at him for what he's doing in Ukraine, the atrocities that I witnessed and other things there, uh, that maybe this is just a PR move uh, to give Trevor back, especially since we hear that Trevor's physical health is significantly deteriorated. Um, uh, I don't know. I can't get in the mind of Putin, but I'm glad we have one home. We need to get the other home. Uh, We need to defeat Putin uh, in Ukraine Ukraine can do it. They believe they are winning by the mere fact that uh, without the rest of the world even believing initially that this would be a long war because Russia would roll over them. That hasn't taken place. They've stood up strongly. They've defended uh, and they push back. Uh, They believe if they have the resources, which they're very thankful of from the United States and the rest of the Western world right now. But if we can get them more and more quickly uh, they can push um, Putin and his forces back uh, to, uh, out of the country other than Crimea, and then they are, have a resolve ultimately to take that back as well. Uh, it's an incredible push that's going on there. Uh, the opportunity to preach in two uh, uh, churches on Sunday uh, and to see on the faces of those Ukrainians who had just come back to church for the first time on Easter Sunday after having bombed out communities around them, families killed, families had leave the country. I saw uh, five miles of, of cars coming back into Ukraine on Saturday of Ukrainian citizens who wanted to be back with their families on Easter. I was in a bomb shelter in Odessa when, uh, when uh, five missiles were announced that were coming toward Odessa and um, uh, abandoned the restaurant that we were in with uh, uh, David Beasley, who's the U.N. ambassador for for food security, a great man from the United States. Uh, We were meeting with him on the port issues. 
We were rushed to the basement. The band came down and continued playing the concert in a bomb shelter in the basement. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's 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 resolve of uh, people's minds. And then they handed me a guitar, and I had a chance to lead them in uh, uh, country roads, take me home to the place where I belong, beautiful Michigan, my home. Oh, wow. <laughs> And uh, then I let him in an amazing grace and to hear the, the sound of Ukrainian voices, male voices singing in their language, drowning out the English of the few of us that were Americans there. Um, it, was, it was awesome. Uh, and and that, that's the heart that's there. And that's the heart that will ultimately beat Putin uh, if we stand together. And the heart that will ultimately, I believe, believe bring Paul William home as well. The Michigan GOP named Christina Caramo as their nominee for Secretary of State and Matthew DiPerno for Attorney General at a contentious statewide convention last weekend, which seemed to create a rift between the longtime party operatives and the newer staunchly pro-Donald Trump contingency. Tony Daunt has been a longtime influential member of the state's Republican Party. He resigned from the state's GOP committee after the convention, and he talks about it with Tom Jordan and Kevin Dietz on All Talk. Uh, I did not attend the convention on Saturday. I had uh, some family commitments that I um, was attending to, and so I, I missed the convention. I did go to the county convention uh, a week or two prior and, uh, and you know, voted there and, and sent a slate of, of good folks. Um, but ultimately, um, everything I've seen and heard is that, that the state convention was just a mess all around, whether it's, you know, logistics or, or you know, the, the actual running of the show uh, down to uh, how things played out with the voting and uh, who was ultimately elected to represent Republicans uh, for AG and Secretary of State. And uh, for me, I've been pretty consistent over the last several years, in particular since the election and since Donald Trump really ratcheted up the insanity with his lies about the stolen election or his claims of a stolen election. And uh, it's just it's been very frustrating for me and, and so many others to see this party um, do this and, and party leadership who know better, who who know that what Donald Trump is saying is garbage. Uh, they they turn a blind eye or even worse they regurgitate it, encourage it, and, and think that, um, you know, it won't have any long-term lasting effects. And unfortunately, that's simply not the case. We've seen this guy's been in office almost two years now, and he's, he's working some of these people like puppets. And it's going to throw away an otherwise excellent year for Republicans in the state of Michigan. And it's really tough for longstanding conservative Republican folks like me to witness. Donald Trump, we see him in speeches all the time. He continues to claim the 2020 election was stolen. He continues to look back uh, more so than he looks forward. Uh, what happens to those in Michigan, in the Republican Party, who disagree with Donald Trump's claims? Well, you know, I think what we've seen thus far is that they're certainly going to get, um, you know, they're going to have mean things said about them. Um, press releases, uh, ads, phone calls, things like that. You know, he really torched Tom Leonard, which is just astounding given that Tom Leonard has always been a, a solid conservative speaker of the House. He actually was, uh, Donald Trump nominated him to serve as uh, one of the uh, you know, prosecutors, uh, U.S. prosecutors um, in his administration. Ultimately, the, the Democratic senators blocked that. But uh, it just goes to show how um, kind of uh, uh, all over the map, uh, and manic Donald Trump is uh, in terms of his loyalty, his lack of loyalty, and pe- 
people who show such undying loyalty to him, like some of the folks leading our party institutions, um, is is mind-boggling because it's only a matter of time before he turns on you. And it's just like the uh, the insanity we're seeing from the left and a lot of this kind of cultural warfare nonsense and wokeism, um, whatever you want to call it, ultimately you run out of targets to attack until you turn on your own. And it's only a matter of time. And I want Republicans, I'm still a committed Republican, I want them focused on the future. I know there are many other Republicans same have the same thoughts. Focus on the future, candidates for the future. Take some of Donald Trump's um, you know, kind of political acumen with the working class, utilize the positives of it, and discard the caustic negative parts of it. And that can be done. It was done in Virginia. Ron DeSantis in Florida does it to a great degree. And uh, so there's examples of other folks that can be successful leaders of this party and win elections. And so that's why, my, you know, I just have had enough. I think that the party isn't, hasn't shown a willingness, at least in Michigan and at the national level in many ways, to listen and to cut this guy loose. Here's what it seems to me. It seems that there is a difference of opinion on what's happening with Republicans if you're an insider, if you're part of the party leadership versus the common everyday person who's out there in the workforce as a Republican. They seem to be, for the most part, really in love with Donald Trump's policies. And they thought he was very forward-looking. He's done things while he was in office that presidents have not done before. They've been too afraid to do that. Look at what's happened with the Abraham Accords, looks what happened mm-hmm. to his approach to China. They, they were not going to do that, but Donald Trump did do that. He was forward thinking. But in the party leadership, there's a big divide and it's becoming public. Um, is that beneficial? I mean, I know, I know Donald Trump's personality is very much disliked by a lot of people, but some other, Tom Leonard even himself said, I am going to vote for a conservative up and down the ticket, regardless of who it is. That means even if it's a Donald Trump endorsed candidate. But I hear a lot of Republicans say, no, I'm not even going to do that because I hate Donald Trump so much. Is that a mistake? I guess it depends on how someone looks at their their role and and how what do they think about their vote you know is it strictly binary for them um do they do they have other considerations um when they go to vote i personally um am always looking for the most conservative candidate who can win an election and who has uh generally an upstanding character and um i've i've you know, held my nose and voted for some folks before, and I simply said, nope, that's too much. I'm not going to vote for this person and just work my way down the ballot for those I did support. Would you, though, vote for, let's say it's, again, a Joe Biden and a Donald Trump? What do you do in that situation? Because we see what Joe Biden's policies do to this country. They're antithetical to conservatism. Donald Trump's policies are not, but he is a, you know, obviously a caustic uh, character in terms of his personality. What do you do in that situation? Well, I'll, I'll answer kind of the second part of that first. Um, you know, that you mentioned the Abraham Accords earlier and some of the great things um, that did happen, some, some accomplishments from the Trump administration. Those are things that should be celebrated and that despite his personality, I was, you know, I was appreciative of and I, and I celebrated those gains. But that's not what the Trump acolytes are focused on. That's not their their main thrust of supporting Donald Trump and Donald Trump endorsed candidates. It's, it's solely on this 
insane argument that he won the election and that it was stolen from him. And that's simply not true. And that turns people off. It turns off Republicans, Democrats, and independents. And so that focus makes it untenable. And so if there was a race again between Donald Trump and Joe Biden, a huge hypothetical given the the failures of both men over the last several years, I would simply sit on my hands and not vote for either one of those individuals because I've seen how dangerous Donald Trump has been. That behavior from post-election to January 6th was disgraceful and should have resulted in his conviction of impeachment in the United States Senate to completely jettison that man from the Republican Party, take the wins that he provided because he had some solid people surrounding him to get some of those things done and move forward, take the positive, jettison the negative, look to the future. The Democrats are giving plenty of opportunity Mm -hmm. to go after them and their failures. And I'm I'm afraid Republicans in this state in particular are missing an opportunity. The Detroit Lions' first pick went as expected in Thursday night's draft, picking hometown Wolverine Aiden Hutchinson second overall before trading up to number 12 to take Jamison Williams, wide receiver out of Alabama. Tim Twentyman from DetroitLions.com recaps the first night action with Guy Gordon. Brad Holmes likes a guy. He's aggressive enough and willing to go up and get him, and, and it doesn't matter the price. Um, you know, I, it was it was a if, if you look at the, tr- the trade charts and draft trades, you know, it was a pretty feel, fair deal. But look, he did give up, you know, 32, 34, the first round pick in in the third round. He got back a mid second round pick, but he gave up a lot to get a player that he thinks is, um, you know, one of the most dynamic players in the draft. He had him very highly graded, and I think it just shows Lions fans. Look, if there's a player like that that Brad Holmes thinks can really help this football team, can be a dynamic player can be a difference maker he's not afraid to go get him and Lions fans should like that about Brad Holmes well I mean it it was a really nice surprise just to see them kind of shaking up what has been kind of a a kind of a tired approach to the draft I I think in, in the past let's talk about Aiden Hutchinson he may have been the best player on the board we we lucked out I guess by getting him at two and his reaction I mean, this unbridled joy that we saw in his face that he's going to be playing in his home state and in his hometown was really something. It was, and he said that you know, this is what he wanted through the whole draft process. This is, hope, this is what he hoped would play out, and it did for him. And, and look, look, he grew up in Plymouth. He went to Ann Arbor, wore the winged helmet, and now he gets to you know, be the face of, of the home team franchise. And so... Um, you know, I think it couldn't have worked out any better for him. And I think it's a perfect fit just with Dan Campbell as well and, and their personalities. And, um, you know, he's very much a player's coach. And, and I think it's just a perfect fit all around scheme-wise, everything else. And we, we talked to defensive coordinator Aaron Glenn, and he walked into the room with the biggest smile you could imagine, guy, because, look, he got a dynamic player. And, and it's a guy that they wanted targeted through the whole process. The player wanted it. So it was just a perfect fit. It was a perfect marriage. So t- t- talk to me, and for those that didn't have a chance to, to hear our conversation yesterday, why Aiden Hutchinson is such a special player and how his skills are going to translate from college to pro. Well, he checks off the, all the boxes, you know. I mean, from a um, from just a size, power, skill set. I mean, he's 6'6", almost 270. And so the lines are, are moving from a 3-4 base to more of a traditional 4-3. And here's a guy that's, that's got position versatility. He played the three technique over the guard as a freshman at Michigan. And then you saw what he did out wide last year. And so 
I think he's a guy that can play anywhere from the three technique all the way out wide to the nine. So there's a ton of position versatility there. So, you know, Aaron Glenn can mix things up between Romeo Aquara and Aiden Hutchinson mm-hmm. and Charles Harris. And, um, you know, he's got, you know, an advanced uh, toolbox of, of pass rush moves, probably the most advanced of any of the pass rushers that was in this draft. And um, he's just a violent physical player, and that's how lines want to play. And so it's just really a perfect fit for them. To the lay people that looked at, at the trade, where basically um, Brad Holmes gave up our 32, 34, and 66 pick to move up to number 12. It looks like we gave up three guys to get one. Help me with that deal for those that say, boy, I, I guess I would have had a few more more talented bodies than even a, a Jamison Williams as great as he might be. Well, really, when I look at that trade, it, it's really up giving up one body. If you really think about it, you gave up 32 for 12. So in my opinion, that's a wash. And you gave up 34, which was the second pick in the second round, but you did get back 46 from the Vikings in that trade. And so you've essentially moved down 12 spots roughly um, in the second round, but you still have that second round pick. What you really gave up was number 66, your first round pick in the third round. So when I look at the totality of that trade, really you gave up one pick, your your third round pick, and you still have 97, a late third round pick, a compensatory pick. So, you know, you, you went up 20 spots in the draft and you essentially gave up one player, one pick. Um, you had three picks in day two. Now you've got two. And so that's how I look at it. Um, Now, obviously there's going to be a difference in caliber player that you get at 46 first, you know, 34. Um, That's just the reality of it. But Brad Holmes was just adamant that, that this kid was one of the highest graded, uh, you know, guys in their draft. He said there were a group of players that they had pretty similarly graded at the top of the draft. Jamison Williams was one of those guys, Mm -hmm. and he was able to snag him at 12. And so I just think when you are are a general manager, you put together your board and you have this cluster of top guys, right? Let's say this group of eight to ten guys that are the top graded guys, and then there's a drop-off to the next level, the next tier of player. And so that Brad was just like, I can give up a pick and go get one of those top graded guys, a guy that I think is the best wide receiver in the draft. And I can walk away with the best defensive player and the best wide receiver in this draft and essentially give up a third round pick. That's how I view the trade. That's how fans should view the trade. And, 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 you know, I, I think you okay. got to feel pretty good about that if Jameson Williams turns out to be a really great player. But, but you know, the Lions fans, we're a damaged lot, right? I mean, <laughs> we, 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 will, uh, we, we will always look for what can come back and bite us in the behind a few months from now. Jameson Williams did have an ACL rebuild. Um, I would certainly assume that Brad Holmes vetted him medically every which way you can. Uh, is that something that uh, those of us doubters should be at all worried about? I mean, there's always a concern when a guy has a major injury like that, but you know as well as I do that, you know, an ACL isn't what it used to be. Right. Um, You know, I mean, guys are coming back, um, you know, six to nine months and are stronger than they were before. It's it's not the Gale Sayers, Billy Sims career ender that it used to be. Yeah, it's not what it used to be. I mean, we're even seeing with, you know, Achilles tendons now. I mean, a guy like Cam Akers last year, his Achilles ruptured his Achilles in, in training camp and was playing by the end of the year last year for the Los Angeles Rams. So it's just, you know, the advances in, 
in uh, medicine in terms of those kinds of injuries, especially with the ACL, um, is, is one that players are coming back very quickly from that. And, and really, you, you never knew they had it. Mm-hmm. Um, still, obviously, a concern, right? It's a, it's a major injury. But um, like you said, uh, the, 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 the NFL people yeah. take the medical stuff very seriously. They've done their homework on this. Sure. And they obviously feel pretty good about where he's at. They'll do it for Pod Sui this week. For full episodes or anything else you might have missed, go to thegreatvoice.com. See you next time.